Well, 2018 is behind us, and the Old Testament is history, as we already knew, but it's <laughs> the study of Old Testament is also history. So we're going to now uh, spend some time recapping what we just learned with our Hebrew. Hebrew, Hebrew. Vocabulary, vocabulary, vocabulary. Review, review, review. <laughs> you like my echo effects in the I studio like it. here? Uh, so I'm Mark Holt. And I'm Bry Cox. And this is a Gospel Doctrine special episode. Brian and I uh, decided that the way, the best and the funnest way for us to review the Old Testament was to look back over the most important Hebrew words that we either learned or used as we were teaching and studying the Old Testament this year, and just talk about what those words mean, and when we learned them, and what they taught us about the lesson they're involved in. And we also just wanted a chance to get together and not, we weren't quite ready to say goodbye to the Old Testament yet, so I'm... Uh, I invited back our old friend, Bry Cox, to take part of this. Hey, Bry. How you doing? Good. And uh, this this week's podcast is brought to us by Whirly Pop. They're uh, <laughs> really good popcorn. It's a popcorn maker I got for Christmas. We really don't have any sponsors. I just... <laughs> and actually, I don't think it's called Whirly Pop. It's, it's great northern, but it's good popcorn. Sponsored by Mark's Popcorn. My, my popcorn. And it's we also should have sponsored a little, by uh, Colonel's of uncooked corn. Have you ever tried those? And then when you put them in a popcorn maker, so it's not just the popcorn maker, but you have to put something in there. Right. So we've been sponsored by the, the corn industry. I feel like we should do some kind of a cold open and make a whole commercial right the second on your, <laughs> on your popcorn. Have you tried popcorn? It's amazing. <laughs> Tired of eating stupid popcorn like I, an idiot? I actually thought that microwave popcorn was the best way to make popcorn, but... Oh, no, not at all. It turns out that I could make this in about 30 seconds, and it's a big, huge bowl, and there's no butter on it, which I like. Yes. Well, well great. Uh, uh, popcorn end, gospel begin. Uh, so, what do you think, Brian? What, what should we start with? Well, I think, uh, for me, one of the things that I really love about the Old Testament... Old Testament's one of my absolute favorites. I mean, just hands down, probably my absolute favorite... Same. ...book... And I really think it's been good that you've had your podcast start on the Old Testament rather than maybe, you know, you could have started at any point, but I think it's a really great foundation because for me, the reason why I like it so much is it gives me the ability to code break all of the other scriptures. So like next is coming up is the New Testament, right? And with... with the New the Testament nice, is entirely built on a foundation. Like God's... Right. All uh, of the Jesus symbols, Christ is constantly talking about things. He's pointing all the Jews. Their entire culture is steeped in the Old Testament. Right. And so then there's like, there's an example, like, you know, you get to the story of Barabbas. And if you don't know Hebrew and you don't know a lot of these symbols, then it's just like, you know, Christ is put up against just some random person. But if you see that his name is Bar, or Ban means son, and Av is father, and his name literally is son of the father. So you have son of the father who's a terrorist who's trying to overthrow the government versus son of the father who's Jesus and the people get to decide then you go hey this is a really cool allusion to the pre-existence and you get to decide who you're going to pick uh, Christ or Satan yeah 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 so, so there's all those kind of things and I feel like you miss all of that without a good foundation in the Old Testament so for me it, I just find it fascinating and fun to just continually study the Old Testament so this that's what's fun, I think, today is just kind of 
It's talking about some cool things that stand out to us. Our favorite words. And we're going to, yeah. we're not going to give you a big list. We're not going to try to teach you any new words. What we're going to do is remind you of words that we've studied throughout the year. Um, and I think a, a great place to start would be in the beginning. Yep. So go ahead. So uh, the first word is Bereshit, right? It becomes Genesis. That's why we get the book. The name of the book is Genesis, but it means in the beginning. And it's really a fascinating, man, there's like in just the Midrash with uh, Tefret Zion and stuff, I bet you there's easily 50 to 70 pages of just writing on the word Bereshit. Okay. So let's <laughs> give us give us sixty pages of it. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't, we don't need all seventy, right? So there's there's so many cool things about it. Um, for one, it's and this is one of the things is like anytime a word stands out because it's oh great popcorn in the mic. <laughs> Sorry, I just couldn't resist. Go ahead. So anytime a wrong word is used, then you get this discussion in the midrash between the rabbis of why this word and not another word, right? And so bereshit isn't necessarily the most the right word, like, because it implies you need a noun. It's like you, it should be proper grammar would be in the beginning of the world, right? It needs a noun associated oh, with I see. it. But instead it's just in the beginning and it's just kind of left floating there. So Meaning in the beginning of everything. There is no, uh, there is no thing to say because there's nothing before that. Right. So there ought to be a, you know, there ought to be used a different word for that very reason. Like Barashona, like at the first, at the beginning, just meaning at the beginning of it all. But uh-huh. instead it's, Barashit. And so that, there's so much discussion. And some of the cool things I think that stand out is that the Lord used uh, blueprints. And so all this comes from this word, uh, Barashit, is that the Lord used blueprints and uh, to create the world. And the blueprints are the law or the Torah. And that the Torah preexisted, you know, the law preexisted, the temple preexisted, the creation of heaven and earth. So and the that, principles that God used, in other words, um, God had a set a set of uh, guiding, he had an ethos that, that existed before the world came. In other words, there was a spiritual creation before there was a physical creation. Right. So that, that concept is contained in that single word, Barashit, tells us that the physical creation predated the, or the, sorry, the spiritual creation predated the physical creation. Right. So there's some cool, there's some cool things. Like one way you can look at Barashit is a contraction of Barashit. And which really is another way of saying he created six. And then the question the rabbis say is, well, who? Who's he? And it's Elohim, because the the opening um, sentence is, Barashit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim ba et ha-aretz. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so they're like, well, who is he, Elohim? And who is he? He's the great architect. And he used blueprints, the law, the gospel, in a sense. That was really impressive, by the way. I didn't, you didn't... You... You guys can't see it, but he didn't look at anything. He just said that right out of his memory. I can't do that. <laughs> I have big chunks that I can repeat from that's, Genesis. That's amazing. Yeah. I can't do that from all books, but I've just that's studied Genesis for scholar, so long. And I'm just the podcaster. <laughs> you know how hard it is to be a podcaster? Dang hard. No, literally every person listening could be a podcaster by this time tomorrow. <laughs> Getting, you could have a PhD in podcasting. It'd be like one of those... Uh, online degrees you just buy you can everybody can be a podcast nothing special you're the hebrew scholar yeah well yeah particularly on midrash and in genesis and a lot of that early stuff is my absolute favorite so what that means is i'm going to try to steal your thunder as often as i can during the course of this <laughs> episode <laughs> sounds I'm good to get to all the words first so i've got here's a couple cool um translations from the midrash of how maybe a better translation that the rabbis say from from that opening sentence. Oh, into English, yeah. Into English. So one is, with the purpose or by means of the beginning and the end, 
of the Torah that God, did God create the heavens and the earth. Oh, interesting. So in other words, the law is the whole purpose of the earth and it's the end. It's, it's the beginning and it's the beginning and the end for the purpose of the law. That's the whole reason we're here. The end meaning the uh, aim. Yep, the aim. Okay. Good. Or, Be-Rashit, in other words, put in the, the, the pause instead of Bara with a half, with a pause, Bara-Sheet instead of Be-Rashit, meaning with me, as in the beginning, meaning the Torah and with me as the goal, God was able to create the world. Oh, wow. And then one last one here, but this in turn, this just has to do with light, right? Like in the beginning it was, you know, the, the world was void, you know, yeah. um, We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, and then light. And so the whole idea here is a whole other translation, which is Bereshit as a preposition. So the verse would be translated as, In the beginning, before God created heaven and earth, and while the earth was still formless and void, God said, let there be light. That light preexisted. It's his tool. So a lot of cool things come from the rabbis actually, asking I, I the question. I still remember from years ago your fireside on this, on this topic. Oh, yeah. So that was fascinating. So yeah, Bereshit's just so interesting to me. And... Bara sheet can also be like he created six and what are those six? And then they have, well, obviously there's the six days of creation, which are the actual creation, but they also have a list of six things that he created before the creation. Oh, okay. A preexistent things that are written in the Midrash. And so one is the law or the Torah, the throne of, of glory, the patriarchs, um, which is Israel, God's family, all of us, mm. uh, the temple, uh, the name of Messiah and repentance. In other words, the plan of salvation is how I would say that. But in other words, there's all of this kind of as a long, deep rabbit hole. The more you study the word yeah. Bereshit, the more you get to all of these really cool lessons. Interesting. Well, that to me, that ties into the next word I wanted to talk about, which is Elohim. Yes. So a lot of people think, well, we know that Eloha or El, not Aloha, but Eloha <laughs> or Eloha uh, is God. But we almost never see that word in the Old Testament. What we see is, what we see is Elohim, which is the gods or gods. Yep. And... I've read a lot of explanations about why that word would be plural, because it's obviously used in the singular to refer to God, and yet I don't think anybody truly knows today why it's plural. But one thing they can't disagree with is that it's plural. It's clearly a plural masculine Hebrew word, and it means gods, and it's all over the Old Testament. The name of God is, in fact, gods. And Yeah, so it's actually... It is really well known. It's just that we don't get into it a lot. Go go ahead. If it were plural, then also bara created would be plural. But bara is singular and Elohim is plural. Uh-huh. And it's and in every situation where you find that, that's how it is. Elohim's always plural. And the, so sometimes so the, verb, the the subject is plural and the verb is singular. Right. And so and what from, do you read from that? I mean there's a lot in the Midrash, there's a lot of Hebrew scholars, but everybody all basically im um, just means great or elevated. It's a way of repeating it. So it means, in fact, sometimes Elohim is used for angels, right? And so then to distinguish God, then it's Elohi Elohim. In other words, the God of gods. Mm. And so sometimes, like I'll hear this, like you'll hear somebody in church and maybe they've, they, they understand finally that maybe Elohim is plural. And so they go, aha, that's proof that angels mm-hmm. helped in the creation. And it's kind of a misreading. I mean, because we get that enough from Latter-day Revelation, Yes. But really, Elohim is it's another way of it's a it's a way of doubling up the word. It's a way of saying great. And even Talmud and uh, Jesus the Christ points that out. That the way to read it isn't plural, but the way is to say elevated or great, the great God. Uh it, so what you were saying about in the beginning, for me, when I when I uh was when I was studying the 
beginning of the book of John a few weeks ago, John is trying to bring to our mind the the beginning of the book of Genesis, and he's trying to tie Christ into the creation oh, right. of the world. And he starts the book of John the same way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? And he talks about how the Word was involved in all the creation. And so, and then he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. So then we're, we're given to understand right away that Jesus was, is God, and he's man, and he's the creator, but he was killed. And so Hugh Nibley actually had an interesting way of translating the word, uh, word, which in Greek is logos, but, and most people just translate it as word, but Hugh Nibley said one, another way to look at it is counsel. And uh, I just thought that was interesting because yeah. um, it, it sort of hints at a plurality of creators, even though it doesn't hint at a plurality of gods. It says in the beginning was the council. That's, this is what uh, Hugh Nibley suggested as an alternate translation. Yeah, and there's plenty. I mean, there's definitely, and even in Midrash, there's descriptions where the Lord um, stretches out the heavens, the firmament, and the phrases of the Enochim. I mean, he spreads out the heavens like a gauze. And there's very specifically uh, Michael on one corner, Gabriel on one corner, Jehovah on one corner, and Melchizedek. And they're all pulling it tight and spreading it out and laying it across the earth. What about Metatron? <laughs> That's my favorite angel name. But did he not pull out any corners? He wasn't listed in the oh, corners. Only four corners. Okay. Um, well, one more thing on Elohim, because um, there's also Midrash stuff about the question of why Elohim, why not Hashem, why not all these other yeah. words for the Lord? Why is it specifically Elohim at the beginning? And the answer the rabbis give is because Elohim stands for truth and justice. And so the point is that the foundation of the world was set on truth and justice. These, these uh, concepts that predated the creation. Right, because usually what you get is Hashem is another word for Jehovah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so usually that's usually symbolic of mercy. Anywhere you see that where Elohim is more associated with justice. Okay. And even on the Ark of the Covenant... So, and you've talked about this, right? And you got the cherubim and the wings, they face each other. Mm -hmm. And you have wings facing left and wings facing right, and they make the mercy seat. Interestingly, the, the two wings, one facing one way and one facing the other, one symbolizes truth and one symbolizes justice. Okay. And something's there. And Which I've, one symbolizes the American way? <laughs> that'd be an eagle <laughs> <That's> pointing. Yeah. <laughs> But some, some, there's, there's something, and I don't know quite what it is, but I'll figure it out at some point. But there's something about truth and justice being the foundation of the mercy seat, that those two things are needed for mercy. And I don't... That's interesting, because one of the things I want to talk about is the, uh, later, and just probably towards the end, is the um, interplay between righteousness and justice. Oh, okay. Because those were the twin... Uh, a lot of the prophets had those as their twin principles that were being neglected by the people of Israel. But let's, so we're still on page one, paragraph one, verse one, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, and we're still talking about the world was formless and void. So yeah. that those words are tohu and vohu, or tohu vavohu. Right. And this is a form of poetry, right? So uh, one of the things that we can talk about is Hebrew poetry. This is this internal rhyme uh, or assonance, the, the vowel sounds being the same. And a lot of people have taken formless and void to mean that the world was created ex nihilo, meaning from absolutely nothing. God right. pulled the world out of a vacuum. And we've already said that in the beginning sort of 
discounts that idea, but what else would you say about that? So that comes from the councils later, right? Yeah, the, During the third, fourth centuries, all the councils trying to decide what the... The Greek that were heavily in, influenced by Greek thought to which matter, these yeah. people felt like matter was a sinful thing and only spirit was truly righteous or truly uh, of God. Right, because they're like, well, does God have a body? And then the whole idea was, well, if matter is corrupt, therefore... God can't have a body. Ultimate matter corrupts absolutely. <laughs> so therefore, uh, how? and then maybe they, they look at it as maybe that's somehow not as powerful if yeah. God had to make something from something. Almost like original sin. If God creates the world from matter, then there's then it was flawed from the start. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, so that opening phrase is, uh, in the earth, the earth was formless and void. And that phrase is used quite a bit it's really dug down into yeah. in the Midrash. And there's actually, so back then, and this is what's really interesting, is there is a definite belief in creating matter from matter. And there's a lot of cool legends and stuff in the Midrash. And there's even, and so one of my favorite comments. Or as we would call it, matter unorganized. Yeah, matter unorganized. Chaotic and that's the matter. best way, I think, for us to see it is it's chaos. One, word, one, word, one phrase that I've heard used to render tohu vavohu is wild and waste which sort of preserves yeah. the alliteration or preserves the poetic aspect of it without changing the meaning so it, instead of saying it's it's void it's it's a vacuum the the bible was never intended to be a a physics lesson a, lo, a lot of times exactly. we read it and we think oh uh wow did they really mean that it was void like did, was there no matter were there no atoms and that's very much a modern way of reading an ancient text and it's not appropriate. They were the the ancient writer of Genesis was trying to say it was unsuitable for human habitation, and also getting across the idea that when God did create the world, He had an end in mind, which was, "I want to make a place where people can live." That's very much the idea of Genesis: is that the earth has a purpose, and the purpose is man. Yeah, and that organization gives things purpose, and naming them gives things purpose. Naming them, yep, and so. Uh, Melchizedek is called the repossessor of worlds and the, the reprocessor of matter. I need I need him for a car that I sold to this guy. <laughs> to I, go repossess I, it. Re so nowadays we understand the idea of space rock and asteroids and just yeah. dead matter, right? But um, And so we we try to read a modern understanding into this ancient work. Yeah, but, but it actually does kind of make sense because Melchizedek, his whole job is in the preexistence is taking dead matter and heating it up like in a furnace uh -huh. and removing the dross from the silver and creating a, mule, a more pure matter. Interesting. And the earth is created the same as man, right? So we have tohu vavohu, the formless and void. And then the Lord adds to that, which is just basically dead matter. You can think of it as just dust or rock. And he uh -huh. adds to that uh, light or he says, let there be light. Yahi or vayahi or and like let there be light. And there was light and he uses light as the animation. And that creates... Um, a living world. And it's the same with man. So there's some cool words with man, right? Adam just means man, but it literally means a man made of red earth, ruddy. Uh -huh. uh, and it comes from the word Adama, which means dirt. That's the root. And so man is made from, like, you know, there's all the, you know, you know, from dust we are, from dust we shall return, and all those kind of things. We, there's lots and lots of references to man being dirt. And God adds light but in this time, he uses the, the phrase ruach or wind or breath. 
meaning the uh, the invisible animating factor. Because we right. the meaning we would take from that is spirit. Spirit. But, yeah, because you can't see but, air, and you can, but you can you can definitely see that it moves things. Right. To them, the breath was the spirit. When somebody stops breathing, that's when their spirit has left them. They yeah. saw the breath as the spirit. The same word meant both concepts. Yeah. And so to they, them, they might have been the same concept. Yeah, exactly. So this God's breath, the ruach, the breath of life, animates man, and he becomes nefesh, or a living soul. So, so far we've got uh, tohu vavohu. We've got... Uh, say the in the beginning again. Uh, Barashit. Barashit, that's right. And we've got um, Adama or Adam. Yep. Adam. What does Eve mean? Uh, Kava. Kava just means life giver. But you can see English came from Hebrew eventually. Mm-hmm. And so you can see a lot of words like earth is Aretz. In Hebrew, you can see where Aretz became earth. Yeah. And same with uh, Kava. You can see you drop the K and just get Ava, which becomes Eve. Yes. And so uh, that's why in the... In the book of Genesis, when Adam gives Eve her, her name, he says, I'm going to call her Eve because she's the mother of all living. And you might read that. If you didn't know the Hebrew, you would think, what does that mean? Why, why would he call her Eve because she's the mother of all living? It's because we don't know the meaning of we Eve. We don't know the meaning of Eve. Yeah. But yeah, it means life-giving or life-giver. And when we know that, we're like, oh, so the, these two are obviously archetypes. And when we when we look at Adam, because his name means a man... We see ourselves. Yes, that's but the big when lesson. When we look at Eve, we see somebody who's in relation to us, somebody who's giving us something. I think that's very significant. The, the, the first man was somebody who we likened to ourselves. The first woman was somebody who nurtures all of us that we all come from. Yeah, because we are Adam. I think that's one of the big lessons. Yeah. Right? And so when it refers to the man a lesson in the, in whose the name is Adam. For those who have been through the temple. Right. So when it's referring to the man named Adam, it's a ha-hadam. It's the man, the, the Adam. Mm. But for the most part, we just look at it as it's us. We're going through the same progression and the same steps. I have a quick quote here I should read on Tohu Vavohu because a lot of people, even today, like you're saying, they do the creation ex nihilo. Mm-hmm. So this comes from the Tefret Zion. It's a Rabbi Yadler, and he wrote, Tohu vavohu is a material substance, and therefore matter is preexistent and eternal, and God created something out of something. Yeah. So this is, I mean, it's just, it's just very obvious that this is how it's always been up until the... before. Yeah, before these councils, that wasn't nobody yeah. would have even considered the idea that God pulled creation from nothing. Yeah, there's so many... I mean, just like, yeah, Melchizedek creating something from something, the Lord creating something. It's, it's so evident. And then all of a sudden... Everyone discounts all this now. They go, yeah, they didn't know enough. Now we know more. <laughs> which, which is true. We do know more. We do and know more about some things. That doesn't mean that they didn't think a certain way back then. For us to for us to try to retrofit our understanding of today back on them is a huge mistake. And as long as we're trying to learn from them, we might as well pull forward as much of their understanding as we can. And maybe, yep. And maybe some of it is erroneous, but maybe some of it is right, and we're the ones who don't have the correct understanding. I mean, yeah, they're the ones really, who have the revelation, after all. Yeah, it's good. It's better to put your feet and try to stand in their culture at their time yes. to understand things, as opposed to trying to make it the way we want it to be. So one more word I wanted to pull from Genesis yeah. was tselem. Tselem, oh yeah. So that that actually, we uh, today was the last Sunday of the year, and in church today, we did Lesson 45, which is uh, the book of Daniel. And so... In your ward? In my ward. Okay. And the image, the, the image uh, concept should have been pr- up foremost in that lesson. 
Um, but I hesitated to bring it up. But um, so man is created in the image of God, Selim. Yeah. But then later on in the Exodus, this word comes in again because men are created not to or, or commanded not to uh, form any images of an of any other gods, create any images, graven images, right? Right. But it also means countenance. And we talked a little bit about, in our, in our lesson on Daniel, we talked a little bit about how um, Nebuchadnezzar had created this image that everyone had to worship. And then... Yeah, that was a good plan. Shadrach, and then yeah, his Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not going to do it. And then he frowned, you know, he, <laughs> yeah. he lost control of his own Selim at the same moment that they're saying, we're not going to worship your Selim. And so... He was showing the faultiness of earthly tzelem, earthly images. But the point is behind this, to me, the point is behind behind the the fact that we're in the image of God is that we don't need to create another idol. We don't need to create a false god because all of us already have an image of God that we carry around with us every day. And God already did all the work that is involved in creating images. We don't have to create anymore. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, uh, it also means uh, shadow. And I, I think one of the big lessons for me when I see Tzelem is that the Lord made us in his image and he did it by adding light. He added light to dirt and made us who we are, but we're still not on the same level. We're a shadow of him. We're, you know, many levels down. Yes. And the whole purpose of life is to continue to add light, right? The path of light to the tree of life. And as we get higher and higher at the mountain and add light, in other words, the commandments, doing the right things, we gain more light and become more like him. And that's the whole purpose of this world is to become more in his image. There's a cool thing. We were talking the other day, it was a, it was a while back, maybe a week or so ago, just about Selim and Golem, mm-hmm. right? This whole idea of matter plus light. And that's how creation is always done. So that, I mean, that's how the earth was created. That's how man is created. Yeah. Golem is not a biblical word. It's a, it's a Jewish. It's a Yiddish. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. A, from the, uh, the ghettos of, of Europe. That where there's they create a monster out of dirt and give it a word, yeah, and then they can send it forth to do their bidding. It's a, uh, a I I always when I was a kid I always pronounced it in my head as Gollum. Oh, okay. But it's go and so the word uh, for the creature in the Lord of the Rings is sort of a play on words for that. Gollum. Oh, it is. Yeah, I, I believe. I'm so. not a fan. I, always of, I'm not, so. I don't keep up with Lord of the Rings all, but I'm sure there's a ton. His name is Gollum. That makes sense. It, but this is G O L E M the word for an animated creature of dirt. It, yeah. And so the legend the says culture. that like a rabbi, if, you know, to protect the, maybe the Jews in the, in the ghettos, you know, he creates a mud man yeah. and he animates them with the word Emmet, which is true. So he writes the word Emmet on a piece of paper, puts it in this, this creature's mouth and it comes to life. It can't talk, but it can definitely go around and do all the things it needs to do. When it comes back, you unanimate it by taking out the light, the word Emmet. Yeah, so you can kill a golem by pulling the word out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah, but then that becomes eventually um, Frankenstein. Yeah, which is I think is fascinating because that's still dead matter animated by a spark or lightning, which is the same phrase used in a lot of Old Testament. Yeah, uh, and in a lot of science East. fiction. Yeah, it's always works. a spark, right? The spark yeah. animates the world or animates man. You don't ever see. In fact, uh, I read the original Frankenstein. When I was a lot younger, but yeah, in all the movies, he he takes these body parts, sews them together, and then strikes them with lightning. Right. In the original book, he doesn't do that. Oh, there's no lightning no, in the book. No, not lightning. Oh, and it's and my my contention. We see people at, in Halloween dresses. Oh, great! More popcorn. When you see people dress as Frankenstein, it's like no, he 
Frankenstein was the doctor that made the monster. That he, you're the monster. Yeah, the monster's just the monster. Yeah, but one last uh, analogy is um, robots today. So we still want to try to create things. We still want to try to create things in our image. And the whole idea is we're still trying to make either computers do things that we would do or robots kind of look like us. And in the end, it's still dirt, silicone, mm -hmm. plus electricity. There is no element that's closer to dirt than silicone. Yep. And in all of these instances, it can never meet or exceed the it's creator. It's a shadow. It's always a shadow. It's yeah. always a level down. The golem is always a level below the rabbi. Frankenstein monster is always a level below Frankenstein. And robots always below men. I like that, Brian. So let's skip forward to uh, Moses. Moses. So uh, Moses goes and sees the burning bush. And God talks to him. And Moses says, uh, I'm going to go back. God gives him a, this miss, mission, go back into Egypt and free my people. And Moses says, okay, but I haven't been a Jew up until this point. Who do I tell him sent me? And God says, Eye Asher Eye, which means I am that I am. And this is the name that God gives Moses, but it's only the name that God gives Moses. In other words, God has a different name. When Moses is talking about him, then, then he uses Yahweh. When God is talking about me, he uses I am. So he says, tell him I am sent you. And then when Moses goes and tells him, then he uses the word Yahweh. So I am that I am. What does that tell us about God? Um, I've got a lot on that, but <laughs> do you want to start? Why don't you start? Um, to me, it just says God is not created. Nobody created God. He is the uncreated one, which is, uh, if you ever go to a, a Passover Seder in a Jewish community, um, one of the, what are the names they have for God? Blessed art thou, eternal our God. They'll say that over and over again. And eternal is a name that they, they have for God so that they can avoid using the name of God. Right. And uh, so that is seen as a perfectly valid drop-in substitute for Yahweh, the word eternal. So I am that I am means um, everything is present before me. As you know, in Hebrew, there are two tenses. There's perfect and imperfect, or in other words, finished and unfinished. Right. And everything that's not finished or past tense is imperfect. So it could be present tense. It could be future tense. So when God says, I am that I am, what he's also saying is, I will be what I will be, or I will be what I am. I'm unchanging and I am what I will be. Right. It's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm the non-created one. I'm the one that pre-exists the pre-existence. So that goes right in line with the word Yahweh, which is... Um, kind of the same thing. It's saying he is, and I have a, I have actually a whole. I'm not, I'm not the Hebrew scholar that you are, but I have a whole essay that I've written on this one subject. I kind of cool. got, I kind of got really into this. Um, if we had more time, I'd read it. But um, basically, the word Yahweh is not a known construction of the verb to be, but it is grammatically exactly like he is, if that word existed. But what I think happened is. Because God claimed that as his name, nobody ever used that verb form again. And so it's, uh, it's exactly what you would expect if you were to form the causative form of the verb to be in the masculine third person imperfect tense, meaning he causes to be. If you were to try to form that word in Hebrew, the word you would come up with is Yahweh. And then everyone would say, yeah, but that, that word just doesn't exist. Right, because everyone stopped using it as soon as God says, this is my name. 
then everyone said, okay, we're never going to express the idea that he causes something to be with the word Yahweh ever again, because that's the name of deity. Oh yeah. I like that. And so, um, that's one idea. It's my idea, or I shouldn't say it's only my idea, but it's my belief. And, um, a lot of things fall into place when you, when you see things that way. For example, when he says a lot of times in the scriptures, you read the Lord of hosts. And whenever you see Lord, as we know in the old Testament, it's the word Yahweh is underneath that. The translators of the King James version didn't want to write Yahweh or Jehovah over and over again. So they would substitute it with Lord. So the Lord of hosts. Yeah, and that kind of came later when they lost the prophets. They started to realize, um, the Jewish people started saying, Hey, maybe we're, we need to step it up. Yeah. We need to like be more righteous. And what, what are we doing that, you know, we could do better. And they said, are we keeping the, are we taking the name of God in vain? Yeah. Maybe we're using the name of the Lord too much. Are we keeping the Sabbath day? And they start to get really strict about yeah. all of the commandments. Yeah. So my Hebrew class was uh, online from Israel, right? And so it was really specific. You could not read um, Yehovah or Jehovah or Yahweh. You would see Yehovah and you would read it instead, Adonai or Lord. Oh, this was a rule of your class. It was class. a rule. Nobody it, wanted to hear that from you. Yeah, and so it's just a rule of Hebrew. And so a lot of times, sometimes if you look in the Hebrew, it actually will say Lord. And other times it is literally Yehovah or Jehovah. I see. And so, but that's that's the whole idea is they were trying to keep and it you're more not sacred. Allowed, you're not allowed to destroy any piece of paper with that word on it. Oh, really? Did you know that? Mm-mm. If, and that's why they avoid writing it. And that's why sometimes if a Jewish person is writing, they will write G. And then instead of writing G-O-D, they oh, will they'll write put a dash. G dash D. Yeah. And that means they can be okay to destroy the piece that's of paper. That's how a lot of rabbis write today. But if they write G-O-D, then that piece of paper is sacred forever. Okay. And that's I, th- I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. But my point about Yahweh is if you ever see the Lord of hosts, the meaning of that can be um, Jehovah of armies, Jehovah who commands armies. But it can also be... If you, if you then translate the meaning of Jehovah, it could be, he causes armies to exist. Okay. Because um, because the word Jehovah is a causative. It's not just declarative, meaning he is. It's also a causative, meaning he causes to be. So whenever you anything you see following Jehovah or Yahweh, you can think of it as God has created that thing. So Jehovah Elohim, for example, he causes gods to exist. That is actually a sentence talking about what the purpose of uh, what Christ's ultimate purpose is, is to create a world full of people like him that can share in his heavenly existence. Oh, yeah. Jehovah Elohim. Or he causes heavenly armies to exist. He brings angels into existence. Um, or Jesus's name. Jesus' Jesus's name is actually the Old Testament, the New Testament equivalent of Yehoshua or Yeshua. Yep. And it means Jehovah saves. But it also means, um, so if you translate Jehovah, he causes salvation to exist or salvation, he brings about salvation. That's Jesus. That's a literal meaning of Jesus's name. If you, if you believe as I do that Yahweh has the meaning that we've just talked about. Yeah. And there's, um, a lot of cool things with letters too, particularly in Jehovah. So, I mean, like you obviously know the word va, which is and, Right. And so like, if you read like in just in Genesis and you just like every single sentence starts with and, mm-hmm. and what it, it, it's, it's called the nail because it nails all those sentences together to make right. a narrative. Right. And every letter means something like Aleph means yeah. an ox head or bait yeah, means a house. Every word has a noun attached or every yeah. letter has a noun attached. So, um, like Yod is hand 
And mm-hmm. hey is look or behold. And so one way, if you look at just the letters, you can't do this with every word, but there's, there's rules, but when you can, it can't. One way of reading Jehovah is look, behold the hand, look, behold the nail. That's amazing. When the Lord appears to Moses, he says, I am that I am. And then he says, I am the one that appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, which gets translated as Lord Almighty. So since we're on the, f- the subject of Lord's names, El Shaddai is a really cool one because that talks about that the whole, all the descriptions in Midrash and Legends is all about how he wears a robe of light and he stands with his hands outstretched and holds up the stars and we're the stars. The children of Israel are the stars and he keeps us up. He keeps us suspended. And there's a really cool Which phrase. Which fits right in with the book of Abraham. Yeah. Because, oh, I mean... Um, yeah, exactly. They don't say that in the book of Abraham, but what happens is Abraham describes the stars being created and one is brighter than the other until you reach the throne of God. And then immediately thereafter, he starts talking about the spirits, the intelligences, and one is more intelligent than the other until you reach God himself. Yeah. And the implication is that we are compared to stars. And even though stars are these uh, huge bright things in the sky, um, stars have a, uh, a finite lifespan. And as amazing as stars are, and as much energy as they put out, God, the point that God is making is we are even more brilliant than they are. Yeah. In Revelations, it talks about stars falling in the last days. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more figurative than anything, right? The whole point is if we're the stars and we're suspended by the Lord, and but some stars are falling, the whole point of that is the Lord doesn't break his covenant, which means people are breaking their covenant and falling away. And one last thing on El Shaddai, um, he's described in Midrash as being the one that says, expand and fill the space. He commands heaven and earth. And anytime you see those two phrases together, like in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, those two phrases together. It's not because a lot of people can do things on earth, but no one can command heaven and earth. But El Shaddai says to heaven and earth, expand and fill the space. Now stop expanding. In other words, he controls, we would say in today's world, he controls physics. He controls really the motions of everything. And all that is implied by the name El Shaddai. El Shaddai, yeah. And there's a lot more we can get into, but we'll keep going because I know we got <laughs> more you want to talk about. Well, I mean, there's a whole Bible full of Hebrew words we could talk about. Um, the next one I had scheduled was uh, Segula. Oh, okay. So um, we're, we're kind of sticking with the book of Exodus. And the uh, children of Israel are, are traveling across the Sinai. And they reach, the, they reach Mount Sinai. And God gives them the, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, the Ten Statements. Um, and I think that's worth talking about, the Debarot, which are the, uh, the commandments, are not actually commandments, they're in Hebrew, they're statements. And so the, the Jews think that the first commandment is a different commandment or a different verse than Christians think. I don't know if you knew that. But... Oh, yeah, they're in different order. Oh, yeah, okay. So... Um, the Jews think the first commandment is, I am the Lord thy God, because that's the first statement. And the Christians think the first commandment is where he, is where he says, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. And uh, the point is, in, uh, in Hebrew, anything that God says is one of the Ten Commandments. And, and in, once we've translated it, you know, Chris, Christians know the Bible in, only in translation. Right. And so... Um, our, our view of that is a little different. But anyway, a segula, God says, you're going to be my peculiar treasure. He tells this to the people of Israel. And the word is segula. 
And we, we find that word in a couple other places. For example, Solomon had the peculiar treasure of kings. Yep. And the point is, it's somebody who's super wealthy, the wealthiest person in the world, a king, a king like Solomon, who had all the gold and riches he could ever dream of, and he had, he had the admiration of people. What would be something that would motivate a person like that? In other words, what do you get the man who has everything? So a segula is something that even Solomon would lock away in his secret vault and go and look at at night. And again, to use a Lord of the Rings reference, it's <laughs> it's my precious, right? It's okay. something. It's uh, it's the it's like when Jesus gave the parable of the pearl of great price. Oh it's yeah, good. something that you would sell everything to go buy. Um, God was saying, "You are what motivates me. You're the treasure that I have above all the riches that I own. You, my people, are my treasure." And then the He uses the rest of the Bible to tell the story that my law should be your treasure. So you are my treasure. In other words, I can never forget you. You're the whole thing that gets me up in the morning. And my law, I'm going to write it on your hearts so that my my law will be your treasure. And so the word segula carries all of that with it. Whenever you hear treasure or peculiar treasure or uh, the treasure of kings in the Bible, probably the underlying word was segula. And something else to remember is even though the originals of the New Testament are in Greek, um, it's almost certain. I've actually read a number of things on this lately. Most people believe that the that Jesus and the disciples were speaking Aramaic, um, which is close to Hebrew anyway. But right. um, a more modern view of something that something that's starting to become a consensus is that they were actually more likely speaking Hebrew. Um, so I don't know whether that's true or not. But the point is, Greek isn't. The, the New Testament was itself a translation before it was ever even written, even if it was a translation by the person who experienced it. So Matthew, for example... And yeah, the earliest copy we have is Greek, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's what they wrote it and in. And he may have originally written it in Greek, but he didn't experience it in Greek. That's my point, is Hebrew was the language where all of this stuff happened. And if it wasn't Hebrew, then it was Aramaic. And even in, in Daniel, we have some Aramaic. So Hebrew and Aramaic were the languages of all of the scriptures, all of the Bible, even the Greek New Testament. So the the later uh, the later Greek in which it was recorded was sort of the first draft of the translation, if you will. And there's a lot of, I mean, just the word alphabet that we get, yeah. right? It, it literally comes from the first two letters. Uh, in Greek, that'd be alpha, beta, mm-hmm. or AB, as we call it. But in in Hebrew, it's called the aleph, bet, because the first two letters are aleph, and bait and there and that's where i mean you can see where a comes from aleph it kind of looks somewhat the same and you can kind of see where mm-hmm. b comes from bait so you in the end it would all it all originally was in hebrew and the earliest copies of the bible we have which is written sometimes later is in greek but doesn't necessarily that's just the oldest surviving copy it's not the original yeah. and if you want to if you want a little bit of trivia the old english alphabet is actually called a futhork why is that? I've never heard that. Because the first letters are F and TH and K and R. <laughs> Futhork. The Futhork of Old that English. That can't be true. It is. You look it up. <laughs> it sounds unlikely, but it's probably true. While you're speaking on... Futhorks? <laughs> no, but I, th- I think that subject goes right along with Kadosh, which is a good word. Another good word. Uh, uh, Not to be holy. confused with Skadoosh, which is uh, the word that Jack Black says in Kung Fu Panda when he... <laughs> when he flexes his pinky and kills the evil tiger. Which I'm sure wasn't Hebrew. It was probably not Hebrew. Yeah, but Kadosh literally just means set apart or separate or peculiar. 
that's the whole point of right the, the temple's holy because it's separated from the world and, and the point i wanted to make about kadosh is isaiah finds himself called into the temple and in isaiah's entire experience the thing that can get the thing that is communicable is impurity so in the law of uh, moses if you're ritually impure then you can't go into the temple and so he's he has this vision in the temple and he thinks oh no i'm going to be killed i'm I'm impure and I'm in the presence of God. And here are these seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And um, and then God says, no, you're going to be purified. And one of these seraphim brings over a, a coal, puts it on Isaiah's mouth, and he realizes he's purified. Yeah, and it's the heat and the light. from the, It's a glowing coal. That's the whole idea of the symbol of the coal. Yeah. Is it's hot and it's glowing light. The purifying power of fire. And he realizes that not it's not just the impurity of man so if ritual impurity the way it worked was if you touch a dead body its impurity is communicated to you you don't if you're ritually pure you don't go to a dead body and touch it and then it's pure it's impurity that's communicated it, right it's, mud gets on clean clothes yes and what he learned in the temple was when you're humble before god because his attitude was i'm not worthy to be here and then god was able to purify him so what he learned was when I'm humble, then the purity of God is also communicable. It's it's capable of being transmitted from God to man. It's not just impurity that is communicable. So I wanted to talk about that. So kadosh means things that are set apart. It means yeah. things that are holy. So we but go it's to the... also the holiness of God is transmittable by God if he if if he sees humility in the person that wants to receive it. Oh, in other yeah. words, when like we repent, that. we can be forgiven. Yeah, when you go to the temple, you change your shoes. You know, you change your clothes. <laughs> I'm going to eat some popcorn. <laughs> but the whole idea is that you're you're leaving the outside world behind and you go through all these ritualistic things which then cleanse you to be able to attend the temple. I like that. And so along with Kadosh, I, I, they're not really related words, but Kavod, it sounds similar, so I wanted to cover them at the same time. So Kavod is glory. And... For me, it came up uh, when when Ezekiel has his vision of the glory of the Lord, and he's riding on his strange chariot. And you can go back and listen to our lesson on Ezekiel if you uh, if you want a review of that. So he sees this vision of God coming from the direction of Jerusalem towards Babylon, and he's riding on this strange chariot. But what he says is, and this is he's already getting into the cultural thing where he doesn't want to say the name of God. And so rather than mention that he sees God like Isaiah did. What Ezekiel says is, I saw an image of the likeness of the glory of God. And the point is, the word kavod, the glory of God, actually means heaviness. And it carries with it all of this baggage, like uh, all, all of this context. Um, much, much like the word baggage and much like the word context. Kavod is the context that comes with God. Kavod is God's baggage. It's his weight. It's his reputation. It's all of the honor that is due him. It's everything that God owns and that ha he has created. And I guess the point is God's kavod is literally everything in the universe. So you and I, your kavod is your house, your car, all of the, all of the photographs you've created, all of the awards that you've won, everything that you know, all of everything that people think about you or might say about you, all of those things is your kavod, your reputation. And God's kavod is literally infinite, whereas man's kavod is fleeting and temporary. I like that. So That's yeah, cool. Yeah, so the word kavod, the word glory, 
another thing I wanted to say about Hebrew is um, Kavod brings up that that idea. So uh, when and we just went through Christmas, right? And and you sing glory to God. So I wanted to bring up the song "Far, Far Away on Judea's Plains." I noticed this for the first time this year. Um, we sing "Far, Far Away on Judea's Plains." Uh, blah blah blah. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God in the highest. We sing it three times. If you wanted, right. to, if you wanted to say something in the most superlative form in Hebrew, that would be exactly how you would do it. Right. You three is truth. Yes. So, so you wouldn't you say repeat it three. That's that's the most. So you wouldn't say once glory to God in the highest. That wouldn't be super meaningful. You would actually. You don't even need to say in the highest in Hebrew. What you would say is glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. And so that's why now I now I. That song has new meaning for me because yeah, you sing the same exact words three times, and you're saying kavod to God, you're, to God be all things, to God be all of the weight in the universe, all the weightiness, all of the honor that is due Him. That goes right back to Elohim, right, being plural. It's, yes, it's uh, it adds greatness. That's the whole point. Okay, um, so that brings me to a word that is very prevalent in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is hevel. Do you remember that word? I we think for a second we talked a little bit about um, the fact that so it's all is vanity, okay. all is all is futile, right? And the way this word has been tra- uh, translated so often is vanity, but what it originally meant was smoke and vapor. And I, the point I made at the time was I wish that they had just left it as vapor. Oh yeah, because we're you and I are capable of learning through metaphor, um, and. That's a perfect metaphor for what it means, which is transitory. It's not that it's it's vanity. And and it, the interesting thing is since 1610, when the King James Version came out, the English language has changed enough to where people, a modern reader reads that all is vanity, and they think conceit. They think um, people thinking too much ego, egotism, right? Okay, yeah. But really what it means is vanity uh, in the sense that all things are in vain, meaning useless. Right. And the, so the I'd point, have to look up the, the root for Havel, but I like that word a lot. And again, I have some thoughts on that, but keep going. Go ahead. Here no, no, you say. So the point of the, the book of Ecclesiastes is not that everything is pointless, but that um, when we think that we understand the world, what we're really doing is putting our foundation on something that is transitory. Yeah, cool. And it's it's really trying to get across again and again the idea that we live in a fallen world and we can't count on anything but God. And we should take we should take those few pleasures that life affords and be grateful for them because it's all we can count on. Everything else we have to count on God for. And a lot of times people misunderstand the book of Ecclesiastes and think, oh, this book is so pessimistic. And the point is, the book is saying, don't be pessimistic. If you if you put your faith on, a, on the things of a fallen world, then you're going you're gonna to be investing in the same kind of thing where wi- the wicked are rewarded and the righteous are punished. That's not the way God works, but it is the way this world works sometimes. And so that kind of thing is vanity. It's smoke and vapor, and you can't trust it. I like it. So one of my things, one of my, my personal ways of study is I have, I write kind of mini papers or talks in a sense on certain subjects, and then I just continually add to them throughout the year. And so I have a really, some really cool stuff on just smoke and fog. Uh-huh. And so what, one of the biggest things is, uh, I mean, yeah. It, fog or mist is caused by sin and all of these symbols throughout everything, right? So you have Lehi's dream. Mm-hmm. So you have the, mis- the straight path, which is the correct path, which is straight like a laser beam, straight up a mountain, 
to the tree of life. What's the Hebrew for laser beam? <laughs> well, it's just a light. Let's, light is straight. Laser beam. Let's <laughs> be, beam. Laser beam. I'm going to pretend that's Hebrew for laser beam. when we were beam. kids and laser was always an acronym and always had the dots between the letters? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's right. There's a, there's a throwback. <laughs> Gazer but, beam. But yeah, light that's is straight. That's people old enough to have seen the first Incredibles. <laughs> So, but the mist of darkness is created by evil, right? And it's the, all the strange paths that lead you off the correct path. And so here, here's, a, here's some cool things. I really am listening. <laughs> You're going to make people skip forward. <laughs> They're not going to want to listen no, to they, the chomping. They, they love the popcorn. Okay, so here's a cool list of, that I got from Hugh Nibley on Just Fog. So Justin Martyr talks about only by revelation... From outside, can man be freed from the fearful confinement uh, from our own limited experience? The whole idea is life in this world is basically like living in a foggy house or a foggy cave where, we, where we're always kind of bumping into each other and we can't ever see everything completely. And we're trying to put what little data together that we can because we're, we're kind of stuck in a foggy environment. Mm-hmm. And the only true way to get real... Um, information is to have someone from the outside clear air from heaven walk in, someone who knows the building, someone who's talked to the, uh-huh. the builder come in and, and describe us to us. So we've got like Clement and Clementine's uh, recognitions. He talks to Peter and Peter says, the world in which we live is like a house filled with dense smoke, blinding smoke caused by unbelief, malice, ambition, greed, and because of the smoke, the inhabitants can't see things clearly. They grope around with weak and runny eyes, coughing, scolding, bumping into each other, tripping into furniture, trying to make out a bit of reality here and there, a corner, a step, a wall, and then trying to fit their faulty day together to make some kind of sense. So you have Plato talking about where the world is a cave, yeah. where all we see are shadows. Aristotle says, the human mind is a bat that sees everything through a kind of dim half-light. And Job says, we, there's, uh, we can know nothing in this world, where our days are only a shadow. And Oregon says, human intellect is at its brilliant best is like a tiny little candle, a feeble spark that can hardly light a foot of the way ahead. And Tertullian talks about philosophers are basically men that groping around in the dark. And Paul said, we see through a glass darkly. Yeah. So there's all and of these Brigham cool Young things. said of Joseph Smith, he said, uh, well, I can't remember if it was Brigham Young or Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith said, uh, you know, you'll learn f- more in five minutes talking to God than you will in all the books written about the subject. Right, because in the end, it's all, that's the whole idea is the philosophers, the people who think they're the smartest people mm-hmm. in the end are just bumping into each other. And then Peter gives, he refer- references this fragment from Abraham that we don't have, but we have Peter quoting it, mm-hmm. basically talking about Abraham studied and studied and studied and only by visitation of an angel and, and Jehovah does he get then a vision of the world from beginning to end. And suddenly he understands everything and it's only through revelation. It's only, and that's why he becomes a prophet, right? Cause he gets that revelation. So he then is the person from the clear air going into the smoky world and trying to explain and deliver the message. So lots of cool things on smoke and stuff. I could go on and on. Here's a cool quote from CS Lewis where he says, virtue, even attempted virtue brings light. Indulgence brings fog. Okay. I like that. Yes. The whole idea and on is the other we're hand, trying to add light. We're trying to add light, and light's the only thing that cuts through that fog and the darkness. And interestingly, uh, in contrast, when, when uh, Solomon, and this is in First Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicates the, 
house of the Lord, then this big smoke, the house of the Lord fills with smoke. Do you remember this? And that is how they know that God has inhabited his dwelling. Oh, yeah. So I have a whole list of the other side of the symbol, which is God's smoke. Yeah. Right? Like Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed by what's called a smoke of the furnace. It's, it's a purifying fire that makes smoke. Or you know that the Lord is on Mount Sinai because there's the smoke of the furnace on top of the mountain. It's his uh, Shekinah. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk about Shekinah a little bit. So Shekin means dwell, to dwell or dwelling. Yeah. And um, it wasn't, it was in the, it was in the, uh, the lesson on the temple when we talked about how the temple is shared space. So God lives in heaven. And this, it, it is such a good chapter to read first, or I believe it's first Kings, not second Kings. But anyway, first Kings chapter eight, um, the dedicatory prayer of the first temple. And Solomon gives this big, long temple or big, long prayer. And each time he says, we know God that you live in heaven. This temple is not big enough to hold you. Not No part of earth even the entirety of earth would be. However, in your dwelling in heaven, when we come to this place, hear our prayers. When this happens, when this happens, when this happens, and, he, and there are probably eight or nine examples that he gives. When we, when we sin before thee, if we come to this place and pray to you, then in your dwelling in heaven, hear, hear our prayers, right? May our prayers uh, reach your ears. And that's a, that's a common theme in the temple as well, which is we want God to hear the things that we say. Yeah, they burnt incense, right? And that's the idea of that um, continual prayers rising upward, visual. They can actually visually see these prayers going up. So, the, yeah, the smoke of God represents the presence of God and the dwelling of God. And, and then God's, uh, God's goal for all of us would be that we would eventually, by, by coming into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, be the dwelling place for the Spirit which is very similar to the temple. That's why it says over and over in the New Testament that we're each a temple because we're meant to be, again, just like the temple of Jerusalem, shared space. Yeah. Where we're an earthly dwelling for a heavenly being or a heavenly spirit. Hugh Nibley says that the word temple means where heaven meets earth. Yeah. And that's why it's always on top of a mountain, right? That's why you get these symbols of it's as high as possible. It's trying to uh, puncture through the uh, the veil. It's as high up as possible. Um. So when you but I also think word, it's interesting that we're called a temple because we are literally made of earth. We're dirt yes. plus light from heaven. So we're where heaven meets earth. We are a temple. Yeah. And it's specifically what a temple, uh, what a temple plot actual building is. Yeah. So when you hear the word dwell, uh, for me now, it summons an image of God dwelling because it's not a common everyday word in today's language. Yeah. And so it's uncommon enough that it, it, it summons to me a heavenly image. God wants to dwell among us. And Jesus Christ did the same thing to the entire earth, right? He he came and dwelt, he made his dwelling with man. So anyway, the Shekinah or Sheken is uh is that Hebrew word. Very cool. Couple more I'd want to cover just before we finish up. Um the words for righteousness and justice. So okay. Tzedek and Mishpat, which are which uh Amos and Hosea and Isaiah, they had these these principles that the Israelites were not living up to. And if they would only follow justice and righteousness, and they went hand in hand, one was a a code of conduct that was ethical. And one was a set of relationships that would lead you to this kind of conduct. So justice is relationships to your fellow man where you treat each other equitably. And what equitably is, is defined by tzedek, 
is defined by righteousness. So a tzedakah is a man who is, uh, or maybe I have those reversed. You can tell me. But no, tzedakah means yeah, righteous. Yeah. Okay. So um, the the code of conduct, this this pre-existing ethos that that is older than the world itself, is the righteousness that man isn't following. And so the prophets would continu- continually come out and say, you know, please learn righteousness, learn to be a righteous man, and treat each other with justice. So. Now, you have to adopt these principles and then create relationships among people, create this network, create this family, basically, of um, of people that are influenced by righteousness, and that is called justice. Yeah, the word uh, Melchizedek is a contraction of Melchi, Zedek. Um, Melchi meaning king, and Zedek meaning righteousness, a king of righteousness. I'm glad you brought that up, because I didn't want to, I probably, I didn't think we'd have time for Melech, but... Oh, yeah, but it's just a good one because Melchizedek is always used for the same reason that the, the Jews don't use the word um, Jehovah, and they always say Adonai. Mm-hmm. As Mormons, we don't call the priesthood by its true name. We give it a nickname, and we call it the Melchizedek priesthood yeah. to avoid And we don't even call the church by its real name. We call it the Mormon church. <laughs> just kidding. We call it by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm trying to embarrass you. Yeah, and sometimes Melchizedek is called Adonizedek, right? Which is the Lord of Righteousness. But okay. every I've got a long list of every single reference to to Melchizedek, and every single time, every description, every you can also put in the word Jesus or Jehovah, uh-huh. because he is always a representation of Christ. And so the, he was a drop-in replacement for Christ in every way that people in every could way, observe. In every description, yeah, uh-huh. in every way possible. And that's one of the reasons I think we call it the Melchizedek priesthood, because it's he was so it's close to, avoid, to his example of Christ. Yeah, and it's to help us avoid using the Lord's name too much. So a couple words, I think, I mean, because there's no way we can really hit every word. <laughs> Not even every important <laughs> or, word or even or every, every important interesting word, word. Or even the things that really stand out to us personally. But I think just some common themes that you see all the time are the idea of temple versus like Zion versus Babylon, right? And so there actually really is no word for temple. There, uh, It's always palace which means the palace of the Lord or, or mm-hmm. house or like the bait, like house of the Lord. But I think Zion is a good representation because Zion literally means in Midrash, the high place or the dry place above the flood. And the whole idea is when Abraham makes his altar, he calls it Jehovah Jahari, which is in the temple or on the mountain, there is vision. And the whole idea is that um, without vision, the people perish and you're high up, you're, the, you're, you're Mount Zion, you're as high up as possible, you're as close to heaven as possible, and now you can see clearly, you're above the fog, you're above the smoke, where Babel, the root word for Babylon, literally means confusion. And Satan's tool so is it's always... what you were saying about smoke earlier. Yeah. In fact, even in Midrash, there's a lot of cool things about the temple that's saying if the temple gets corrupt, it will become tohu vavohu, or chaos. And the whole idea is that Satan's Satan's path is always, it can't just be like horse manure versus gold. It has to be fool's gold versus gold. Mm. The path has to be attractive. Attractive. And it has to be a wolf in sheep's clothing, not a sheep. So that you you take the wrong path thinking you're on the right path. Yeah. Not but a in wolf end, in wolf's clothing. That right. wouldn't be, <laughs> yeah. Nobody would want that. So the, and so Babel, the whole idea is confusion is to get people confused. And we have this word wise and the opposite of wise is foolish. And the whole idea of being foolish, I think, when I think of wise, I don't think of just being smart. And we've talked about this on your podcast, and you've talked about it quite a bit. But that wise means to truly see clearly, to understand true right and wrong, and to be able to 
really define to take, those. To know how to p- apply your knowledge according to God's principles. Right. I feel so like it's the right be, pair of glasses. To be smart is different from being wise because it's smart plus this, um, I guess to put it in terms of today's podcast, to to be smart and then add to it the the principles the torah the law that existed before the world did yeah and it gives you there's only two pairs of glasses really right there's like the wrong way the philosophies of man and there's the right way which is the which is god's pair of glasses mm-hmm. where you put it on you go aha i get it and babel is all about confusion like a lot of times we think of satan's message as being tossed to and fro in the waves you don't know where up and down is you're mm-hmm. you're like in a riptide you you, you know the wind's blowing you around you just kind of go whatever direction you're in confusion. That's the whole idea of Babel or Babylon is it's confusion versus mm-hmm. wisdom. Let's talk about Israel. Oh, to yeah. Finish off. <laughs> so we get all these cool names all the way down. It'd be fun to t- go just, through all of we them. We could spend Abraham, hours Isaac, just talking Jacob. about the names in the Bible. I know. And so Jacob, his name gets turned into Israel, which Jacob is a planter and he becomes Israel. And Israel literally means to wrestle with God. And that, man, we could do a whole podcast on just that. But some of my favorite things on that is that you can't wrestle with air. This comes from a really cool uh, Jewish scholar. And he, he, he writes that you can't, if you're wondering and you're, and you're struggling in life about trying to understand the injustice of the world, you are in effect wrestling with God. Because if you truly don't believe in God, then you just go, yes, yeah, I mean, Darwinism, it is what it is. Things just happen. But the mere fact that you feel like there should be justice, that there should be truth, that that's how a, the world was founded. You have a pre-existing need for God to live. Yeah, just like we said, like in the beginning, Elohim, truth and justice, created heaven and the earth. There, there's, there should be at the very foundation, truth and justice. And we're like, why? But this doesn't work out. And that's, That mere fact that people wrestle with those details is a way of wrestling with God. And to me, what stuck out about the word Israel is... Um, I, I heard this from a Jewish thinker and I can't remember who it is exactly right now, but, um, somebody asked him, why do you, why do you like Judaism? And he said, well, and he was talking to a Muslim and he said, well, what is, what does it mean to be a Muslim? And the word literally means somebody who submits to God. Islam means submission. Okay. And Christian, oh, okay. and I, I've heard this. And a Christian going, I like this. means, uh, you know, somebody who follows Christ or the, the Messiah. Christ is a, a Greek translation of the word Mashiach, which is the chosen one, the anointed one, right? We're so, so he liked being a Jew because Israel meant somebody who's wrestling with God. And yeah. so he wanted, he, he wanted to follow a God who is willing to struggle, let man struggle with him because yeah. he felt like life was a struggle to believe. And there's a realization that we can never fully understand everything and maybe not even fully always believe everything, but we go, I'm just going to keep going forward. Yeah, once again, we I'm live in a fallen world and it's, and it's difficult. Yeah. And so the, the only way to Israel, know for sure is to have a, an election made sure, which means you see God, yeah. you get a vision. And Hugh Nibley but says, even then you're still confused about a lot of things, right? You still right. return to earth. Yeah. And Hugh Nibley says, you know, if you're praying for an angel to come visit you, all he's going to do is come quote scripture. So you might as well be reading scriptures. <laughs> 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 and you'd say, oh, just my luck. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, right. The, the, the point is he loved the idea that God was willing to struggle with him and let him struggle with God because life is inherently difficult and anyone can see that. And so the fact that God, God is okay that we struggle with him. And in fact, God says, come and let us reason together in the book of Isaiah. Right. And he loved that about God. And I think that's, 
I love the fact that Judaism, every Christian has Judaism as part of their history. There's no Christian who doesn't believe that Judaism is founded in truth. And that's a, an interesting aspect of Judaism and Christianity that we share, that we believe that every, we believe that every Jew is worshiping something that is true. We just believe there's more that they could add to it. Yeah. Whereas most, uh, most religions, they disagree fundamentally with each other. Yeah, and to tie in some of these things, like we live in that foggy, misty world, and faith implies that there's a little bit of doubt. And that sometimes there's more doubt on this maybe thing or maybe more on that. But in the end, we just moving forward, you know, using light as our guide. Oh, man, I should pull this up. I got a cool quote from Psalms where it basically says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. So if I... To me, it seems like the words we chose have, uh, I didn't plan this and neither did you. All we did was text each other kind of a list of the words we might use. Um, but it seems to me like a theme has emerged, which is, to, for me, it's this. And then you can tell me what yeah. you think it is. Um, God really wants us to figure things out in this world. He wants to give us light and knowledge. He wants to illuminate us. He wants to bless us with all of the understanding that we crave and so we have all these words that basically tell us how he has done this in the past. And if we will pay attention to the scriptures and if we will uh, learn, like you said, learn scripture and be willing to benefit what, from what the mistakes that others have made, humble ourselves and then follow his light, then he will illuminate our path. He will give us revelation. He will, in other words, we're not struggling against God's will to get revelation. He basically is just so anxious. He's so, he's yearning. He's begging us for the chance to, to shower down. As Joseph Smith said, the, he, there is no end to the amount of light that God would pour down on the heads of the Latter-day Saints if we were just ready to receive it. And as we've been talking, that, that, that thought has just been surfacing again and again for me, which is God really does want to bless us with light and knowledge and understanding as soon as we're ready for it, as soon as we're willing, we choose to receive it. I think some of the big things that stand out to me are that these are the same gospel truths that we already all know, I think. But I think what makes it so fascinating to me in studying these words and studying ancient Near East and Hebrew is that it adds maybe resolution. It gives me another way of looking at the same teaching, the same, the same thing, and it makes it far more interesting and maybe Three-dimensional. More three-dimensional of the same story. Yeah, I think three-dimensional is the right way of saying it. And in the end, as we move into this next year, we're supposed to do more home study. And for me, home study has been one of the most... <laughs> I mean, I love it. I, I, I shouldn't say this, but I kind of get bored in church sometimes and I just start doing my own little self-study because I want... I mean, I just crave information so much. You want the kind of thing that we're doing on the I want, podcast. Yeah, this kind of conversation, the kind of conversations I have with you that we're recording right now, these are what I find absolutely fascinating. And and I kind of hope that people maybe get excited about more study at home. And I one of my, I think, favorite uh, quotes was from my old bishop. He used to say, there are no big things, there's just little things. And when he sees people fall away from the church, it's the little things, right? They stopped maybe reading their scriptures or stopped attending church or stopped doing the little things that sound like the little things, but really it's those daily habits that keep us on the path. That add up to big revelation. That in the end, yeah, that's the whole thing is there's some things that I have studied forever and maybe, and it took me a long time to get the little 
the next little step to go further with a lot of this Hebrew studies, I just constantly making notes and rereading them and rereading them and then studying and adding to them. And it's, I think it's that constant personal study that I think has added a lot for me. And I hope that people, I think use it, hopefully use this podcast and their home study and whatever it is to uh, have a, a, a fantastic next year. Yeah. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to the, uh, to the new Testament as well. I love it very much. Not as much as the old Testament, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's the primary source we have for the life of Jesus and it, and, and it's incomparable to anything else. So absolutely I'm excited for it. Let's talk briefly about, uh, what comes between the Testaments. So, uh, the end of the old Testament is about four, let's say 400 BC. Right. And right. then, uh, the, the book of Malachi perhaps is the end, or perhaps it's the book of Nehemiah, or perhaps it's the book of Joel. But in any case, why are there no more prophets, do you think? Why does the book actually end? Well, every every dispensation is a an ebb and flow of famine, and then starts off with a prophet who then... Restoration and restoration, apostasy. Yep, and then eventually, then we go back down again, and we get uh, famine or an apostasy, and then we go back up to Revelation again. And so it's just the, it's the common pattern pattern that you see. And so we get that, that gap, and then you see all of the doctors and lawyers of religion, all of the so-called specialists, and instead we get Jesus, right? And so they think they're the smartest ones. They think they're the ones that know it all. And then we get Jesus who comes and straightens everything out. Yeah. And then we get another apostasy again. And it's just that constant ebb and flow. There's always a gap where people are left to their own devices and I think it's interesting. I've thought a lot about what scripture looks like over the years. And the people of ancient Israel had prophets, but they didn't have scriptures the way we do. And then Jesus had scriptures, but he only had the same scriptures that a modern Jew would have. He didn't have the scriptures that a modern Christian would have. And uh, I remember on my mission, sharing the Book of Mormon, I, by accident, I tracked it out, a pastor and I, I knocked on the back door of, I didn't realize it was the same building as the church on the front, right? Okay. And this pastor lives in the back. And so he, <laughs> yeah. he invites like, oh, me in. Come on in. And he thinks that I've done it on purpose, right? So he's like, oh, come in. And um, and then we'd start talking about the Book of Mormon. And I'm like, okay, I, you know, this this Protestant minister is now not really Bible bashing, but he's like, you know, explain this scripture to me. And I hadn't made a study on my mission. I was 19 years old. I hadn't made a study of the Bible the way I have since then. And he pointed out a verse that's in Revelation that says, you know, whoso bringeth forth another, any other gospel, let him be anathema. And um, I can't remember what it is in English, but he, he shared it with me in Portuguese. And since then I learned, oh, there's a similar verse in the book of Deuteronomy, which is whosoever shall add or subtract to this, let him, you know, have, have great penalties. And what they were saying is, don't add to my words, but I'm not saying I'm the last prophet, right? Right. It's very common. Even Peter writes to John in some lost writings that he's like, look what the people are there. Once I've, you know, given this discourse and it's been written down, they are construing it in all these different ways and they're doing it while I'm alive. I can't imagine what they're going to do when I've gone. Yeah. And this is a very common thing is any, any commentary is in effect adding to or taking away and any translation is in effect adding to or taking away. Yeah. And so the, I was thinking this morning, you know, I was thinking about, we were going to do our podcast and I was thinking about, I wanted to talk a little bit about what happens between the Testaments because, um, in church, we don't learn really what happened. 
but the Jews stayed in Israel, right? They uh, they were conquered again and again by the by Alexander the Great, and then Alexander's empire broke up into three, and then the Greeks came through, and then Antiochus, this terrible king who impressed him probably worse than even the Assyrians did, and then the Romans came through, right? And so we don't really learn the secular history of Israel for any of the time between the two Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New. Um, but all of a sudden, all we know is that they're an oppressed minority where we left them in the New Testament, they were rebuilding their, or in the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, they're rebuilding their temple and things are looking up. Um, the point is some editor somewhere decided, you know what, we've got a bunch of prophetic writings here. We've got a Torah. We're good. Let's, let's put everything together and create a volume of scripture. And some, and then who knows, maybe it was years later, maybe it was centuries later, somebody said, you know what, that's all the scripture there is. Right, now that was decided in the councils. Yeah. That's, that was the whole it purpose. It was people deciding that. It wasn't God deciding that. There's a, there's a man named Bart Ehrman, it's E-H-R-M-A-N, who wrote, was he with Yale? I think he's a professor at Yale. He's one of the big scholars on forgeries and which is right, you know, which, which ones have been proven forgeries and which ones aren't forgeries and this whole, the whole fight for orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. And he has a really interesting book called the, uh, the Orthodox Corruption of Scripture mm -hmm. is what it is. And it's basically all of the various groups and sects and all, everyone fighting for the, the right to be the, the, the correct one, the Orthodox church. And, and then how the winner in effect squashes history and, and all of them, there's, there's so much to it. I mean, it's so well known that there was, there's far more scriptures than we had this, but that, you know, the councils basically said, this is it. We're canonizing it. That's it's locked. Yeah. No, but none was, of these other books. And there were, there were tons of other prophets that we have reference to, even in the, even in the accepted canon, we have reference to other books that exist that are not in the canon. Yeah. And it's very common practice Hugh Nibley points us out that if you're a prophet and you see things going downhill, then you write things down and bury them, right? And this was like before people even had like heard the, of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon. This is so long ago. This is yeah. like the whole idea of Dead Sea Scrolls. If you if you pass on the information, it'll continually get corrupted through the generations. But if you just write it down and bury it, that preserves it the absolute best. And these are just there's there's so many things I know. I so mean, yeah. So any Christian we, today, still buried. Any Christian today would look back on um, Jews of the time of Jesus or the time after, the during the apostles, and say, those guys needed to understand that there was more scripture for them to receive, right? They didn't have everything. But the people at that time were like, no, we've got everything. We've got the entire Hebrew Bible. Yeah, that's Bible. it. And the, the message to the, to the modern Christian is the same. There's no reason to suppose that people wrote about Christ, but that God wouldn't speak to another prophet. This is the this is the message of the restored Church of Jesus Christ. It's very very familiar to Latter Day Saints, and yet we also need to understand. There's no reason to suppose that God isn't going to talk to you and tell you the things that He's going to tell you are not. Um, here is a revelation about when the second coming is coming. Right. You here get, is a here is the way heaven works. Yeah. When we talked about Kolob and and revolutions and orbits. Right, that's the whole purpose. We talked about that a long, punk, long ago yeah, podcast. Yeah, and God's not going to come to you with that kind of thing. What we God don't is get the say, big orbit. That's the prophet. We get revelation based on our orbit, which would be like me, my life, my family. Yeah, Those are the my kind of revelations thing, I'm going to get. My favorite scripture has become over the last maybe year and a half has become Ether twelve twenty seven. What we're going to get is 
God revealing to us our weaknesses. That is the hardest thing for us to receive, is to receive a revelation about where we're lacking. But if you look at it from God's perspective, it's the only message that really matters. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't do me one bit of good to know, oh, here's, you know, how many angels... This is a, a common... <laughs> uh, a common example of a philosophical problem that doesn't make any sense, but how many angels can fit on the head of a pin, right? God isn't going to reveal that kind of minutia, spiritual minutia to us when it does us no good. Right. It also affects our agency. For us to receive revelation about things that don't help us takes away part of our agency to choose to believe. What God True. is going to do instead is he's going to reveal to us our weaknesses. If men come unto me, this is his promise, if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. That's the only promise that we can truly count on. But there's no reason, just because it hurts, there's no reason to assume that it doesn't come from God. That is revelation to us. Yeah, well, he inevitably, you know, when asked what's the purpose of life, he says to forgive and repent. It's like, what's 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 my whole purpose? It's not to learn when the second coming is. Yeah, and try to you people like, I figured out when the Lord's coming. Oh, how? I used math. Yeah. The Lord didn't expect the me to use math. the book of Daniel. Math. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, no, that if the angels don't know, I'm pretty sure you don't yeah, know. They yeah. have math too. So God wants to reveal things to us, and he wants to teach us the things we really need to know, which is what our weaknesses are and how we can count on him to overcome them. So I'm grateful for the scriptures. They, they really are the light that, that leads us forward. And uh, I'm grateful for you, Bri, and thanks for being with me. And uh, I appreciate it. I love having these conversations, and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, so we'll do it again soon. And all you got to do is learn Greek, and I'll have you on. <laughs> <laughs> Greek's my weakness. I don't I'm know just Greek. kidding. We'll have you on. Uh, and uh, so we leave this with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As a surprise bumper at the end, we should have a improv uh, popcorn commercial from our sponsor. <laughs> and if it's terrible, it gets deleted. Hey, hey, Mark. Hey, Bri. What you got there? This is Whirly Pop popcorn. Is that the same old stupid popcorn you normally get from a bag and pop in the, in the microwave? No. You put this on the stove and then you put in oil and it's done in 30 seconds. Oh my heck, it's so fantastic. And you can carry it into the movie yourself. <laughs> whirly pop. We're the whirliest whirly pop of whirly. The whirly, whirliest pop. Pop. <laughs> that was terrible. That's what you get when you improv. <laughs> <laughs>